Hello, good morning. This is Richard Chambers in for Kieran Cuddy until one o'clock with News Talks on the record. If you want to contact the programme, you can send me a text on 53106 at a cost of 30 cent, or you can get me on Twitter at News Chambers. But first, picking their way through today's Sunday papers are Priscilla Lynch, award-winning journalist and editor specialising in health, medical science and current affairs. She is also the clinical editor of the Medical Independent. We have Christina Finn, political reporter with The Journal, and Declan Power, a security analyst and former member of the Defence Forces. Thank you all very much for joining me on this Sunday morning. A very good morning to you. Uh, we'll start off, though, I'll give you some of the headlines and front page stories making the news this morning. In the Sunday Independent, their main story, uh, half of TDs now worth over €1 million. Euro. The story goes that combined wealth of all 158 Leinster House TDs is now in excess of €216 million. Euro. They've roped in Carl Dieter to crunch the numbers. He's found that central to their wealth is the public service pensions which they are entitled to upon retirement. Michael Lowry and Michael Healy Ray, the top two wealthiest in the Dáil. Michael Lowry, £6.4 million, And Michael Healy Ray, the biggest landlord in the Dáil with 10 rental properties and an estimated value of €5.4 million. Euro. Also in the Sindo uh, at the top of the paper and most of the front pages today focusing, of course, on the cervical check debacle. Uh, angry daughter speaks out on mother's cancer death. Grieving daughter says her mother, Catherine Reck, was one of the 17 women who died after receiving incorrect smear test results. Uh, in the Sunday Times, a wraparound cover adorns the front of the paper featuring Leinster's rugby stars getting into the celebration in Bilbao yesterday. The headline, Kings of Europe. Uh, inside, it is back to business as usual. Uh, and again, the cervical check crisis continues. Cervical check claimed it had notified women is their headline. Inside, Justine McCarthy and Stephen O'Brien writing that a wrong assertion that cervical check had notified several cancer patients that their smear test results were incorrect was made in Vicky Phelan's High Court case. They're awfully their Russian embassy builders uh, denied visas. The story there that the Irish government has refused to issue work permits to allow the Russian Federation to bring a special team of builders into Dublin to work on a massive extension to its embassy. That decision from the government following consultation between the guards, the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Justice. In the Sunday Business Post, the victim's lawyer at HSE now stalling on vital medical records. The lead story from Francesca Cummins and Susan Mitchell, solicitor Keen O'Carroll, who of course represented Vicky Phelan in that High Court case, says no lessons have been learned on disclosure. He says that urgent requests for vital medical records of women diagnosed with cervical cancer remain unmet after more than a week, with cervical check providing no credible reason, he says, for the delay. The HSE, the HSE I should say, uh, according to the Sunday Business Post, is going to argue uh, that controversial memos released last week have been fundamentally misinterpreted. Also on the front of the Sunday Business Post, uh, revealed Microsoft leaned on Ireland over drug probe emails. A very interesting story there, which says that secret documents have revealed that the US computer giant Microsoft, uh, in fact, piled pressure on Ireland in a landmark case in America over access to emails at the centre of a drug trafficking probe. It says that leaked memos showing that Microsoft actually went as far as to draft a suggested framework for Ireland to submit to the US Supreme Court. The Mail on Sunday again focusing in on the cervical check debacle and the lead story there saying that uh, Vicky Phelan, who of course, whose refusal to sign a confidentiality agreement with the American lab that missed 
this red smear test uh, told the Mail that the Taoiseach's emotional response to the controversy was too little and too late. That view on Leo Varadkar, interestingly, not helped by those within his own party. The inside story by John Lee, uh, the, par- the paper's political editor, saying that Fine Gael TDs are deeply critical of the Taoiseach's handling of the crisis, with female TDs said to be particularly scathing of his media performances. We're going to focus in now to start off with the cervical check debacle. Uh, I am joined, of course, in studio by our panel on this, and a lot of column inches dedicated to this. I mean, inside in the Sunday Independent, Angry Daughter speaks out on mother's cancer death. Maeve Sheehan, uh, questions have got us no closer to the vital facts. I suppose some of the best coverage is actually in the Business Post uh, with Francesca Cummin and Susan Mitchell on, on page nine speaking about the fear, the confusion, the personal tragedies. And Priscilla Lynch, start off with yourself. I mean, what did stand out for you in the coverage this morning from the papers? Because there is a lot on it and there's some very, very affecting writing on on this controversy to date. There certainly is. Obviously, we hear more about um, from families who've been directly impacted by this, whose um, parents and and wives who've passed away um, from cervical cancer as well. So there are obviously some more heart-rending stories are in the papers this weekend. Um, It's the story that that shows no signs of disappearing. There seems to be new revelations every couple of days. But I think the Sunday Business post coverage is very good this weekend because it seeks to clarify the facts of the case and looks at some of the statements that have come out that haven't actually been accurate as well and tries to reassure Mm. I think readers so I think there's some very good coverage there of what has actually happened and what actually does need to happen. Yeah, we focus in on on the Sunday Business Post coverage, I mean Susan Mitchell (coughs) who is the the health correspondent for the Business Post has been absolutely fantastic throughout this whole controversy, really going in and laying it all out in terms of facts because with any of these sort of situations there will be misstatement and there will be understandably fear Christina Finn especially as we saw in the doll over the past number of days Yeah definitely this has probably been one of the worst health crises that a government in recent years has had to deal with and there's been huge criticism I suppose of how the government have handled this they have been scrambling pretty much from day one to get a handle of it on it and as we said it's great that the Sunday Business Post and other um, publications are trying to clarify the issues because it is multi-layered. You know, there's talk of, um, you know, 209 women who um, have been diagnosed with cancer and there's talk about mm. false negatives and there's memos coming out of Public Accounts Committee and who knew what. So there's lots of different layers. But at the bottom of this, then, there's the women at home that are listening to it who are rightly concerned about the operation of the programme and accuracy levels and all the rest of it. So I think to, to get a handle of it, a handle on it, it's important that people sort of know the facts and continue to go and get their, their smear tests as well. And, and that's sort of the message I think that the government are trying to get out there as much as they're trying to deal with all the rest of it. They really are trying to push the message that they don't want um, detect, you know, people to stop going to get their tests. But I have to say, in the last week, I've been surprised about the HSE in terms of their communications um, towards women. There's been no, like, I thought, perfect opportunity now to get some Facebook videos out or push as much information out there to women as possible. Just but to sort of explain it explain as simply it as, as possible. Explain it as simply as possible. And it's just not there. Like, you know, mm. I, you know, I've been covering it all week and even my friends are coming up to me and going, tell me, what, what's going on here? What should I, you know, what, what's, like, should I be worried? You know, and if, if people are coming up to me and asking me that question, I assume they're asking their doctors and all the rest of it. And 
people seem completely unaware about exactly what the crux of the issues mm. are. I want to read out just from the from Susan Mitchell's um, article, very comprehensive, on page nine of the Sunday Business Post. Uh, she says she states that McDonald, Mary Lou McDonald, the Sinn Fein president, appeared immune to the medical facts. Uh, in another missive, she stated that withholding the results of reviews, which were only initiated after the women concerned had started treatment, might have had a material effect on the treatment provided. Obviously, earlier intervention at the time of the initial false negative smear could have changed the outcome in some women, but all medical experts contacted categorically rejected McDonald's claim. One week earlier, Susan Mitchell, I should say, uh, also noting that uh, Sinn Féin health spokesperson Louise O'Reilly had stated that the state knew that women had cancer and didn't tell them. How paternalistic, patronising and disgusting that is. Once again, Susan Mitchell says that was inaccurate. O'Reilly subsequently deleting her comment on social media. But Priscilla, the misstatements and the mistruths and just the misinformation on this hasn't been limited to Sinn Féin. I mean, how worrying is it from a medical standpoint that that has been a narrative which has, you know, has caught on over the past number of days and even in fact weeks? It's very worrying because it's these negative sound bites that are what absorbed by women who are actually listening and, and reading about this whole situation as, as Christina said that's what that's what they're thinking okay results were withheld from these women which impacted on their outcomes but that's not true um, all the women involved in these cases were diagnosed with cervical cancer and then there was a, an audit of their cases after that and you know we're trying to get to the bottom of what happened at this moment we don't have all the facts and we can't have all the facts at this exact moment everybody wants definitive answers and definitive actions to be taken so you know, it is difficult then when you have politicians who have such an important job coming out with statements that are factually inaccurate and causing widespread panic and scaremongering. It's not helping. Mm. And sometimes these statements are being reported as fact as well and, and they're not being picked up on it or challenged. So as we've seen, particularly on Twitter, actually, a number of doctors have been very active in the last week or two trying to interact with the, the politicians, say, well, this is not factually correct. This is not true. Mm. Um, and uh, Susan has pointed out some of the, the tweets and the statements today and actually gone through them and said, well, this is not not the case. So I suppose that message, it's very important to get it across. And uh, as Christina said, is the HSE actually getting that across really in their communications? I, I don't really think they are. They were very slow off the bat with their communications policy. They are giving updates now every day on, on what's happening. You know, the details of the scoping inquiry, how many women have been contacted, how many women have contacted the helpline. But again, the key message, you know, that we need to get out there is that screening saves lives and that the programme, you know, that, that it, it is being run professionally and that the the pickup level is as high as it can be. But again, you know, we, we're hearing a number of very tragic individual stories and you cannot be moved by those stories. Yeah. So, again, we need answers, but the scoping inquiry we will report by the end of next month and hopefully we will have a lot more answers at that stage. And again, I suppose it's, it's such a, an important topic, but again, maybe we should remind some of those commenting on it that they have a very important role and people are listening to them so they just yeah. need to make sure that they're as informed as possible GPs today actually coming out and saying that they're very very worried that the, the controversy the lack of explanation for the benefits of cancer screening could in fact undermine the whole process Declan Power you've been uh, perusing the papers as well this morning what stood out for you in the coverage of this particular story? Have, well that particular point and I'd like to amplify it because the two ladies are able to give forensic uh, insight into this and I'm just going to come at it from a <coughs> excuse me a, maybe a little bit more of a layman's perspective and take the, the point about the role that sentiment has played mm. in this. And I think there are too many people um, in the, the political uh, arena who have 
jumped onto this as a particular bandwagon. You know, their first priority has really been to uh, to use it as a stick to beat the government and uh, not always pay attention to those pesky little things called facts because there's a lot of detail in this that has to be paid attention to. It's not You don't get a, a glance at the newspapers. It's not going to give you the full detail. I got to discuss this earlier with the two ladies and even just in the, 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 the conversation we had, I was enlightened a little bit more about certain details. And a thing struck me. There's a lot of people out there, uh, not just uh, ladies who are maybe facing into uh, uh, problems about the, the cervical smear test results, but people in general who are preparing for uh, treatment or who are undergoing tests and waiting the results of that, who are, to put it as a medical professional, put it to me uh, last year, uh, managing uncertainty. And that's not an easy place to be. And I speak mm-hmm. with a little bit of experience in that as I was in that position last year myself. And... In that sort of arena, you need every little uh, drop of positivity you can get and every little element of confidence in your practitioners you can get. And that doesn't mean that we should shy away from reporting the news, but it does mean that there is a duty of care out there that if you're going to start engaging in mobilization of sentiment, that may have uh, that may have untold consequences for the confidence of the general public mm. in in the health service, and that's not to say that the health service doesn't uh, deserve root and branch examination and indeed reform. But we do have to be mindful of those people who are in that 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 grey area. I often yeah we walked in here this evening or th- this morning and we passed by your colleague Bobby Kerr. Mm. Uh, every time I hear Bobby on the radio, uh, in recent times, I always smile for a particular reason is that there is a man who was seriously ill not that long ago, and uh, he was quite public about it. And he gave people an awful lot of hope and an awful lot of positivity. I remember chatting to him uh, before we both been on air in a certain program uh, last year. And you feel buoyed up when you talk to somebody who has been out the other end like that. And I'm just saying, counterbalancing that with what has been flooding the papers mm. and the media. And I'm just saying, come back to it. There's a lot of people out there that are in that grey area. They're managing uncertainty. And if you're a politician or you're a, a public figure of some sort, just to be mindful of that. I think that's important, just to, to keep keep that little bit of balance. Yeah, and I suppose there's another point which some doctors have been making to me over the past few days is that some of the people who've been making some of the loudest noises on this have been people who have cast out over the H- HPV vaccine programme over the past number of years as well, which, of course, is a very much a preventative thing for yeah. cervical cancer. I mean, Priscilla... You know, the HSE is pushing back on this as well, especially about uh, the memos. That's something which the Sunday Business Post is telling us here. What way do you think that they're going to try and take this over the the coming days and weeks? Well, there was a lot of outrage, uh, obviously, the details of the memo released Mm. on Thursday. But the HSE have tried to push back maybe with some clarity and context on the memos, um, you know, that when in 2016, uh, when they were discussing the release of the the results of the audit, that they had been threatened with legal action by one of the labs, a US lab. So they said that they had to pause all letters at that point just to make sure that they could release the results and that there wouldn't be further trouble down the line, that they wanted to release the results of the audit, but that they had to clarify the legal issues first. But of course, when you think about that the audit had actually been conducted in 2014 and there was nothing really about the women at that stage, um, except for if the release of of the data, but it's not a bad thing that the HSE wants to protect the integrity of the screening programme and to make sure women get screened and that lives are saved. Unfortunately, when you take, you know, the the memo out of context like that, of course, it seems shocking and disgraceful um, that there was no concern for the women um, really uh, voiced in that particular memo. But it was looking at 
the programme itself and protecting it and making sure that women continue to go for screens and that lives would continue to be saved as well. Um, I suppose the whole thing again is comes down to open disclosure across the health service and there's been a number of actions now taken just about that, that mandatory open disclosure will come in and that should be welcomed obviously as well. But doctors themselves have been at pains to point out that, you know, it's not just them that this involves, that this involves management a lot of the mm. time. They want to have more candour with patients and are told not to, perhaps even though it has been um, national policy since 2013, so that open disclosure and accountability should apply to all aspects of the health service from management and from policymakers and those in charge at the top as well. Um, there is some positives about cervical cancer screening that are that are out there um, as in, for, in this relation to the story that we are moving to HPV testing later this year and that's in some of the stories as well actually including the Sunday Business Post. Um, that's what, will that, what difference will that make? That is a much more accurate form of okay. screening for cervical cancer because the vast majority of cervical cancer cases are caused by the HPV virus and if you have the, the presence of that virus you're at a higher risk but, and particularly if you have certain strains of it. So when we move to um, using that as the standard test in the programme it will be much more accurate in picking up the chances of you developing cervical cancer and for those who don't have the virus they will have to have less smear tests in the future. Now Australia and New Zealand have moved to introduce it and the UK have decided to as well and it's coming in, in Ireland later this year so I think that message needs to be put out there as well. Mm. I think there wasn't, as we said uh, we were discussing earlier, I don't think a lot of women knew that there was a chance that your cancer couldn't be, mightn't be picked up by the screening programme. I suppose that we all thought it was practically infallible and that we can't seem to have any clarity on what the rate of false negatives is. That's yeah, what I was going to say. In the, in the, um, having watched the committee, it turned into an absolute shambles when the heads of the you know people that were running the cervical check were quizzed on basic information about accuracy of the test. And they were glancing at each other, looking, saying 10% or actually is it 30%? There is whispering mm. going on. I couldn't believe it that I was just like, these are the lads that are running it and they don't even know how accurate the tests are. And I think Louise O'Reilly actually picked up the pamphlet that's sent out to every woman when you when you get your result, and it says you know it's a, you know nice laid out and it gives you know a few details and says you know just just to know it's not a hundred percent accurate. But I said the assumption when someone says it's not hundred percent accurate, you kind of assume that it's about maybe ninety five or yeah, but it would be this degree of certainty, certainty with it. Yeah, you don't think that the the percentage that was bandied about in the committee that it could be seventy percent uh, accurate, which. You know, if I was told that the test was only that and there's a 30% chance, you'd be a lot more vigilant about your health and symptoms and all the rest of it. And, you know, Leo Radker said this in the in this uh, press conference there on Friday that the messaging has to be overhauled for the cervical check in terms of women were being told, well, you're grand, not a bother, see you again in three years. And that's just not the message that people should be getting out there in terms of being vigilant about their health and noticing changes in their body. And I just think a lot of women, that's that really shocked people, I think, in terms of, well, God, I thought this was just... And a lot of people as well thought it tested for cancer, which it just doesn't. Can I ask you, yeah. just to clarify, yeah, mm. they, I, that's what I'm curious about. The 30% will say variation that you're talking about there is as to changes in the cells as opposed to... So it, so the test is essentially telling you there's been a shift in the in the cells. Now, so that's step one. That doesn't... That in and of itself doesn't mean that you have it's, cancer. Yeah, you're it means going you to get might, it, yeah. Right, so uh, so the, te- the cervical test might have missed that. Uh, then if you go on to the next level, but of course you're not going to go on to the next level if you're not thinking about it. Mm. So what can... You know, if people are thinking about this now... Uh, symptoms, things like that, women are going to be more vigilant, I would imagine. Mm. That's going to be one of the positives that should come out of this, that you don't just leave everything in the basket of, I've done the test, I'm grand. Mm. And we were discussing that there's a lot of talk about perhaps the, um, you know, the 
uh, smear test levels dropping, which we were discussing earlier, saying actually, th- I think this controversy will probably make people a lot more mm. um, willing to go. You know, a lot of, I know a lot of women, friends, myself say, oh, I got that letter I meant, haven't gone, and you know, it's been a year, actually, I'm a year overdue, and now they're like, I'm booking in. It's very like, worrying, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, what, I, what stuck out to me from some of the covers this morning is how come we can't provide any clarity about how much confidence we have in the idea or in the labs, I should say, which are conducting our screening. I mean, there was concerns and warnings about the decision to outsource this a number of years ago. And yet now we still don't have any clarity as to exactly how you know, how foolproof that is, Priscilla. The HSE wants, I suppose, the scoping inquiry to look into the data and then for Dr Gabriel Scali to come up with an answer. They've released some statistics on mm. the three labs, two labs in Ireland, one's private, one's public, and there's also a US lab as well. They haven't identified which lab is which, but... Um, one of the labs has a lower detection rate than the other two. So they say that's within acceptable norms. But is it really? We'll have to hear, I suppose, from the um, the scoping inquiry. But yes, I remember reporting 10 years ago on the concerns of local clinicians about outsourcing to private companies in the US and that we'd lose a lot of the local knowledge as well. But at the time, it, and obviously it was a lot cheaper to outsource, but that wasn't just the main reason behind it. I mean, people forget that we used to have big waiting lists actually for a smear tests to because come that back was in Ireland. We didn't the have the capacity reason. for the programme. It mm. was. And they also wanted a very quick turnaround and that it would be, you know, very accurate and that you know, it, it it could be relied on for what they would need, the volumes that they would need. But again, you know, there has been a lot of focus on oh, it's all down to the outsourcing but to the US, the but we need was answers. That we would outsource yeah, and then upscale. That the whole idea back. was that we wouldn't, we didn't have enough um, clinicians to run these massive labs that were going to get the test back in time. So we outsource for to America for X amount of time while we upscaled and resource the system better, and that just didn't happen. We just relied on the outsourcing and then they, they say they were warned that this would come back to bite them. And I have to say, you know, just going back as well to the to the memos, um, I, I did actually, when I read them, come back uh, when Tony O'Brien mentioned them and I got them sent on. And I have to say, when I read that, I was like, well, he's, he's definitely going to have to go yeah. because I thought some of the language, and I know you were saying that... Um, you know the focus was on protecting the the program and making sure that that wasn't damaged but i actually just think when you actually read um those that memo and it's it's up online for a lot of people to read i just think the glaring um omission was of the patient being at the at the at the, at the heart, heart of it, it. Yeah, and absolutely. i just thought you know the 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 line as well that um you know we must be prepared for headlines where women are going to come out and say you know this test missed my cancer it was just the defensiveness of a yeah. exactly and i i was discussing this with a few people and i thought maybe it was a look at lawyering up and that's you know that seemed to be that the hse's key message in that and it was just here we go again okay. you know what i mean the hse again um you know looking to protect itself and sometimes i think when something goes wrong people just have to put their hand up and face the fact that yeah. we're going to Except get legal cases. Except a problem here, we need to look at how we... We're going to, have to, we're going to get legal cases yeah. either way and we're just going to have to face up to that. Is that one of the positive spins out of this? Not spin is the wrong word to say, the positive benefits perhaps, that their government, the state is not going to be as confrontational where it's a fairly straightforward situation that there has been well, cultivated. Well, I would hope so, but like, we've had so many cases. Like you know, It's not a week goes by where we don't see some family on the, on the steps mm. of the High Court having gone through an absolute appalling situation situation. and every time you hear TD or the rest of them come out and say well we're working on this we're doing this Mm. and I I hope to God now with with bringing in this new legislation open disclosure and all the rest of it that it is actually pushed through 
We are going to focus in on what comes next now after the break. I want to read quickly, though, uh, from Grace Rattigan here in the Sunday Independent, some great perspective on it. She says that she's not demanding heads to roll or endless court battles. She simply wants the government to pay attention. They need to deal with the 209 families. This isn't a question of thousands. Deal with those families first. This is uh, News Talks on the Record. Richard Chambers in for Kieran this morning. Our panel are staying with us. We're going to get back into this right after the break. The flags go up. Two kicks from Eason as they were. Leinster have come from three points down in the final ten minutes. And they lead for the first time in the game with 90 seconds remaining. And of course they did go on to win it. Dave McIntyre with commentary there on Off the Ball on Leinster's European Cup final win over Racing Metro. More on that coming up later here on News Talks on the record. Richard Chambers of course in for Kieran this morning and joining us on our panel going through the Sunday papers Priscilla Lynch, Christina Finn and Declan Power. And we are focusing in on the cervical check debacle. We're going to focus in on something that Justine McCarthy is writing in page 14 of the Sunday Times. The headline there, Brave Phelan exposes the scandal of silence. A terminally ill mother fought for justice in refusing to sign confidentiality clause. She notes that gagging clauses are how the rich buy silence from the victims. And Declan Power, is there a layer of truth in this? Should we be allowing these gagging orders uh, to be, to exist? Because if it wasn't for Vicky Phelan stepping forward and in the words of Justine McCarthy again today, impaling herself in the public square for the public good, we would be none the wiser as to the breadth of this entire crisis. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, Vicky Phelan, is a, she's a modern-day warrior queen, really, and the way she was able to uh, conduct herself in the courts and conduct the campaign that she has done. Uh, and one of the interesting points about <coughs> Justine's uh, article, actually, one of the ladies pointed it out there during our ad break, is that uh, this wasn't the state that was seeking to apply the, the gagging order. It was uh, one of the labs. Mm. And you made reference to another article earlier there, the, the one about Microsoft trying to put pressure on the Irish government. So there's a kind of a theme here where you've got these big multinational companies who are starting to flex muscle like they're nearly states. And I would argue that it is the state's role in a situation like this to not allow uh, them to exercise that level of um, of power and to try and create, keep you know, the state's primary primary job, at least Western uh, democratic uh, states, their primary role is to serve the interests of their citizenry and to protect their citizenry. And so even if there was, which says in uh, Vicky Phelan's case, you know, an ongoing court case where the state was embroiled, that they should not uh, allow a, a gagging, a, a situation arise where a, an inter- a multinational can exercise that kind of power and that that needs to be looked at further down the line where, because there will be other court cases where you have individuals well, I always, yeah. I always think it's interesting when he, if there's outsourcing of anything um, by the government there never seems to be forward thinking about steps going down the line in terms of you know when they were signing up to a deal with this lab they must have envisaged that down the line there is a possibility of court cases, mm. be it for one issue or the next, or somebody taking issue with a test, or or the rest of it. And why people don't think, you know, ahead of time that, you know, maybe we should put something in the contract there that this is a state, this is a country, mm. it's it's looking after the the citizens of Ireland's health. Um, we need to make sure that if anything does arise in the future, that this company doesn't have any comeback in terms of trying to conceal anything or uh, conceal any wrongdoing or prohibiting of, of gagging orders. It always seems to be after the fact when a court case of something like this comes up that it highlights some sort of glaring um, problem yeah. in a state contract that should have been seen 
10 years ago when they signed up to the thing in the first place. You know, the lack of contingency there exactly. is yeah. the issue, isn't it? Priscilla, just because nine more women uh, say that they are going to be uh, stepping forward with legal action here and obviously with regards to this case, as Kian O'Carroll was saying, that he's found it very difficult to get the information relating to their cases or the, that information to come forward. Obviously, he's under time pressure as well to do that. I mean, again, it's just the lack of, you know, the HSE and, and cervical check covering themselves in any glory here is just is, is so, so remarkable. Certainly, you just often wonder, do they ever actually learn any lessons at all from, yeah. from what happens? Um, expediency is, is vital in these particular cases. Um, Keen is actually taking on a number of the cases. Um, he's Vicky Phelan's uh, lawyer and just trying to get hold of their medical records um, has been reported today as being an issue. Hopefully that will be resolved as quickly as possible. Again, you know, when we talk about commissions of inquiry and everything, how much time do these they take and these women don't actually have the time it has, has been pointed out by a number of them so that you know we need speedy resolution but again as um, Christine was saying just the, ga- the whole gagging order thing I mean the 26 the memo the damning memo um, and uh, Tony O'Brien stepped down after its release at the heart of it was the fact that one of the companies the US lab was threatening to sue the HSC mm. or threatening legal issues around the release of the audit results I mean that is absolutely disgraceful and they're the ones again sorry the US outsourced labs um, that were threatening Vicky Phelan as well with um, a non-disclosure order and that we shouldn't allow this kind of behaviour and that that should be made absolutely clear up front as well um, but we have a very adversarial um, system of dealing with court awards for victims of adverse yeah. health f- um, events. Though I know the state claims agency have, have pointed out that the vast majority of cases are settled before they actually go to court um, and they have called for some changes as well in the particular system uh, to try and make it non-adversarial and Minister for Health Simon Harris has come out um, to say that so hopefully there will be some resolution. But again, do we actually learn from our mistakes? Even as a journalist I found it very frustrating dealing um, with queries at the HSE this week where they claimed they didn't have particular information and then you hear that information being given at being relayed meetings. then again. I mean, yeah. this is it. It's la- the lack of transparency, which is particularly shocking. It's actually worth reading on page six of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Uh, they focus in on Catherine Reck's family. Her husband, uh, Paul Reck, told last Friday that his wife Catherine was wrongly informed that her smear test didn't show striking irregularities, resulting in a painful battle with cervical cancer before her death in April of 2012. Uh, the most shocking revelation, the paper says, for the family was that staff in the hospital knew about Catherine's misdiagnosis diagnosis in 2016 when Cervical Check issued them a letter and the letter seen by Paul had a handwritten note from a member of staff which read contact GP to see if patient is still alive and underneath underneath that the date of Catherine's death is written Paul saying there that uh, they chose not to tell us and when I asked why the doctor said that they were instructed to file it I asked when they investigated to see if Catherine was still alive and she said sometime around then it was very blasé the way it was said so the messaging again there is just utterly shocking especially when you focus in on the families affected but I mean turning on to where this all goes next and the race towards inquiry and tribunal seems to be breakneck speed at this time around. And that is something which I think everybody who's been commenting on this seems almost resigned to. That this is going to go this way, Christina, and that we aren't going to learn anything out of it. Because if in terms of inquiries and tribunals, it's mainly about finding facts. And we Mm -hmm. know a lot of the facts in this already. So what exactly are we hoping 
to get out of this. Yeah, I think when um, Simon Harris was announcing some of the measures that he was going to bring in, so we have the scoping inquiry, which is going to deliver its report by June. But then he went through a lot of the issues that's going to be included um, within that investigation. And some of them are just massive. And there's just no way that um, Dr. Scally is going to get uh, to the bottom of it by June. Um, you know, he said, looking at the contract with the American lab since the inception of the programme. So, you know, to go back that far and, and dig up documents from 10 or so years ago, you know, it's a massive undertaking. Mm. So I think it's definitely going towards the statutory inquiry um, level. And that's, I think, that's where they say they're going to get accountability on all this. And Harris and Radker have said that they're, you know, nobody's immune to, to being um, accountable on this. But, you know, it just is. It I really. Mean, we don't I don't do know if I ever have. We though. don't do it very well here no. at all. And you know, the, yes, Tony O'Brien is gone. But when questioned, you know, he resigned of his own volition. Um, you know, there's some cervical check um, heads have gone. Um, but it's it just seems that there's never anybody that puts their hands up and says um, this was wrong or the way we dealt with this is wrong. And whether another inquiry is actually going to deliver on that. And then let's not forget as well. These are inquiries, and when when findings of inquiries are delivered in Ireland you can't be found accountable really no, it, it's, just, it. it's just a finding of fact that you, somebody did something wrong and we'll put that on a shelf and it's that's a, the end and of it how much will it cost yeah, as well I mean, that's the thing as well yeah the health service needs that money and we need that for frontline services I mean mm. how many millions I mean god the, the tribunals the cost of them is absolutely insane and will they ever issue definitive answers and have held anybody accountable so we do need to know a certain number of things particularly in the cases of the 209 women whether they their whether the cases of their smear tests were Mm. unavoidable errors or whether there was actually incompetence in those particular cases and we need to find that out as soon as we can and then what's going to happen next and whether outsourcing was a good or a bad idea and perhaps will we look at returning services to Ireland With accountability in terms of like um, people losing their jobs you know the the state seems so willing to uh, invest millions of euro fighting victims in the courts, yet they won't take the risk of pushing someone out of their job yeah. and facing uh, some sort of workplace, yeah. you know, I unfair dismissal, you know. True. <laughs> that but is the point. That, sorry, uh, Declan, I'll come to you just yeah. a minute. Just on Conor Brady's point, it is an utterly depressing read if you take it this way. It says, the civil servants protect the ministers and execute their wishes faithfully and fully, enabling their masters to be re-elected. They depend upon each other for their very existence, locked in an embrace that neither wants to relinquish. Uh, so HSE managers, he continues, can rest easy, sit out an inquiry and wait for the storm to pass, after which it will be de- determined yet again that nobody really has any penalty to be paid for anything. I mean, is that, that, that's, that's the public perception yeah, of how is. these things operate. It is, but um, I would go back to uh, an earlier point there that Priscilla was talking about in terms of uh, finding out where things went wrong. I, I would argue there's probably three or four junction points within this sad saga. Uh, and I think, you know, the danger is, and Christina said it as well, we have these uh, inquiries and tribunals. There's one trundling along now about the Gardaí, the, the, the Charlton inquiry. Mm. And, you know, what, are the, what is going to come out of it in terms of serious change? I think the general public would probably settle primarily for something that was reasonably short and sharp, that focused on finding those key junction points and be in a report that says, OK, after uh, after a preliminary analysis, the following facts are A, 
A, B, C and D happened and these need to be fixed. And this is where the, the, the primary focus of attention should be, fixing that problem and making the system, or at least that aspect of the system, fit for purpose. That's the first thing. And all energies should go into that. And then after that, we can talk about the issues about the embrace between the civil servants and the politicians, whatever, mm. because otherwise... We're back to this issue of the mobilization of sentiment. And it's easy and natural for everybody in the general public to kind of say, well, who are the baddies in this? So we want right. to see blood on the floor. But will that fix the system? I'm more about seeing the system true, fixed. But like in, well, a, in, a, in a, a private company mm. of any sort, you know, people tend, they, they find an issue. If something goes wrong in, a, in any large company, mm. they find out what happened, what went wrong, and someone's held accountable for yeah. it. Yeah. It never so, seems to be that clear cut in the head. It's like, oh, somebody sent an email. Nobody signed that email. Oh, it wasn't dated. Oh, I don't know who's over that department. Yeah. There's a constant You're talking about a cultural shift and change, exactly, which I, I would yeah. support, okay. but I think we have to kind of get one sorted mm-hmm. and well, then have it, have it on a phased basis. That's the point that Simon Harris is bringing a memo to Cabinet on Tuesday to bring forward legislation aimed at shoring up the accountability and the governance of the HSE. We're tight for time, but Priscilla Lynch, what exactly needs to happen in the short term to, to fix that situation in the HSE? Because people talk about having an independent board and it does seem striking that that's just something we just don't have. Well, we've been in a constant state of reform of the HSE since it was actually enacted back in 2004. Um, we've had boards and they've been taken away then we were told the HSE was going to be dismantled. Then we had Fine Gael had this huge healthcare policy for universal healthcare, which conveniently has been completely yeah. forgotten about. So uh, the Salon to Care plan was agreed a year ago. Uh, we're still waiting for the head of that to be appointed. Mm. Naturally, there's been a delay. So for what needs to happen, really, I suppose, is mandatory open disclosure, as you said, increased accountability, not just for clinicians, but for managers and those people who make the decisions in the health service. And just a better communication policy and honesty, really, I suppose, there. All Mistakes right. will always happen in healthcare. We just need to be honest about them and actually learn from them from them. Well, we'll wait and see what comes out of Cabinet this week. You are listening to News Talks on the Record. Richard Chambers in for Kieran this morning. Our panel are staying with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Delighted for the players. Great to see them up collecting that trophy because yeah, I know how hard they've worked to get to that point. And yeah, it's, it's incredible, incredible feeling at the end. Um, and maybe the fact that it was ugly like that makes it even better. Leinster coach Leo Cullen on Leinster's European Cup final win over Racing 92. More on that coming up later here on On The Record. Richard Chambers in for Kieran this morning. Joining us on our panel going through the Sunday newspapers, Priscilla Lynch, Christina Finn and Declan Power. Now we turn to Brexit. <laughs> the basket case that it has become. Uh, Simon Coveney has been appearing on BBC this morning. Here's a bit of what he's been saying. We are trying to be... Uh, helpful in terms of finding ways to introduce some new thinking into these negotiations so that we can get beyond where we are today, which is stuck, um, so that we can deal with really important issues from an Irish perspective, like, for example, ensuring that there is no physical infrastructure on the Irish border in the future. And in our view, if we can have a shared customs territory through some kind of customs partnership, which is British government language, Uh, we think that that can be the basis uh, of a negotiation uh, to find a way forward. Because last December, there was a clear agreement that the British Prime Minister signed up to, that there would be no border infrastructure of any kind on the island of Ireland and no related checks or controls. That means we're not talking about cameras and scanning systems and drones here. It means we're talking about a political solution that allows for regulatory alignment in a way that prevents the need for border infrastructure. Now, what I'm asking you is the consequences if Theresa May cannot get the backing of her cabinet for those words, what are the consequences as far as Ireland are concerned, 
as far as the EU is concerned when it comes to that June summit? Well, I, I think it's going to be a very difficult summer uh, for these negotiations if that happens. If we're expecting to get this thing concluded by the end of October, uh, is it unreasonable for the Irish government to ask for significant progress on a hugely important issue by the end of June, when, when it is actually factored into the EU negotiating guidelines that there would be a reassessment at the end of June okay. of progress. Mm. Simon Coveney, Thornister speaking to Nick Robinson on the BBC this morning. As he was saying there, Theresa May has written an, an article for um, the Sunday Times uh, imploring the British public and her cabinet, I suppose, as well. Trust me, I'll take back control, but I'll need your help. I suppose I should ask our panel, why should we have faith in Theresa May's ability to control her cabinet, given that her own foreign secretary, Boris Johnson, described her proposals as crazy during the week and still hasn't fired him? I suppose that's about the 2000th time we've said, why hasn't she fired him at this point, Christine? Exactly, yeah, I think she's actually hard up against it in terms of her coming late into the day towards um, June. And I frankly can't believe that I'm reading articles again where there's talk of technology being used on the border. This has been talked about, checked by the Irish government, by the British government, and it's a non-runner in Northern Ireland. Mm. They made the agreement in December. They signed up to it to say, as Simon Coveney said, clear agreement, no border infrastructure of any kind. And yet again, we have Boris Johnson and um, Davis saying, well, look at Norway's border. They they run it quite well, that there's certain companies that are... um, you know, checked and and that they can freely move through the border. That's not going to work. That has that involves physical infrastructure. And all of them have delays and queues and all this. Like, there, there's no seamless border in the world exactly. that operates like that. That's not what a border is. A border is, means that very thing that yeah. there is something there. And it's it's it seems like I'm just constant of you know the Telegraph article where there seemed like the penny dropped. That oh God, we actually have to sort. There's the we have to sort out this border issue. They, they actually won't let us put any sort of uh, infrastructure on it. And now they seem to be scrambling for some sort of idea. I think mm. it's interesting that when um, Brexit uh, happened, Ireland was looking at solutions to the border issue and we had a whole... Um, the revenue commissioners revenue were commissioners in. Revenue yeah. were looking at how to do it and Leo Varadkirk then became leader and said, hold on a minute, we're not the ones that voted for this thing. We're not paying for this. Um, you guys come up with ideas. I frankly looked like they didn't take up the offer and that they sort of, at the minute, continue to scramble for solutions. I think Theresa May's um, uh, article that she wrote is, is is quite telling in terms of one paragraph where she mentions, um, you know, our, as a proud unionist and we must protect our precious union. That sort of speaks to me that she's definitely has the DUP in her ear there Absolutely. in terms of ensuring she's not getting much support in her cabinet, but she definitely is trying to keep them on side. Declan, in this rush from the hardline Brexit Tories, I mean, I, I don't know if you saw Jacob Rees-Mogg was out again during the week speaking with Mark Carruthers and he was mm. talking about, oh, I don't need to visit the border to see how it works. I talk to people from our Irish M- MPs, as he described them, mm. referring directly to the DUP's Tammy MPs, and basically saying that you know what they tell me, all I need to know. That's all I need to study about it. But I mean, from Simon Coveney was out again this morning saying, "Well, look, all you need to do is talk to people who live along that mm. frontier, and the tears in their eyes when they talk about what it used to be like." I mean, have you heard anything that fills you with confidence, or are we actually kidding ourselves in a way as well that we need to do start need to think of what is the minimal acceptable thing that that we can actually take from this? Well, I think we, <clears throat> it behoves us as a state that we have to look at the worst possible scenario and work back from that in terms of planning for it. And I can understand that the government may well be doing that, but they're, <clears throat> excuse me, they're not going to articulate that until they absolutely have to. But uh, there's, there's a couple of points to rear their head here, um, 
First of all, uh, Christine made the point about about Norway and other other jurisdictions. The Irish border is a very peculiar thing. If ever a, a piece of territory was badly designed to have a border put in it, it's certainly Ireland and that region. I was fairly intimately familiar with it back in the in the nineties. And you know, it goes through people's land. It goes through you know barns. It's it's not you know. And this is what Rees Mogg and his chums, when they're having tea in their private members' club, don't realise and never will realise. In fairness, though, an awful lot of other British people, English people, and English political figures do realise this. And mm. in a sense, in terms of a political solution, it's ultimately, I think, maybe trying to, you know, where, where Ireland and, and other players in this can show them up for their, their lack of um, uh, knowledge about this. But unfortunately, we're looking at a, a Britain today where 30 or more years of fallacious nonsense in the tabloid press have made a certain chunk, not I think we, we have to be careful about being uh, too, too generalistic. Uh, too, yeah, yeah, too generalistic, but a certain chunk in the British electorate, in the British public, I think that anything to do with the EU is like the Third Reich. Now, if you jumping back to the border situation, um, we have to remember. I think as a, as a nation, we have to be kind of strategic. Uh, yeah, the part of the British body politic uh, is completely ignorant about this. But we also need to keep in mind that if there is a border foist on us, it's not really going to be the Brits that will okay. be doing it. It'll be Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, do we need to also politically look at our strategy, uh, which I think we have been attempting to do, but shore up that uh, in terms of whatever happens at the end of the day, that some kind of commitment could be got from Europe that we are not going to foist physical border checks onto our member state Ireland because of the damage right. it will do to your country. There seems to be, if, if anybody wants a further read from the private members clubs, there is a great article in The Spectator today from Lionel Shriver uh, in which he describes Ireland as the EU's lapdog saying the Good Friday Agreement is not wholly writ and it's not a problem for the UK. And the whole conundrum is entirely contrived. But Priscilla, um, just how, from... How short their memories yeah, are. Exactly. The bloodshed but, but, that was stopped by that agreement. But Priscilla, the, anything stand out from the papers from you this morning or, or even as a health journalist? Because there are medical concerns about the borders situation with regard to Brexit as well. Yeah, it never ceases to amaze me the lack of insight and knowledge from a lot of the UK press and politicians about the complexities um, relation to the geographical nature of the border and the politics involved with it. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling, really. And um, I think, as, as we pointed out, we started looking at the implications and uh, what would happen a lot sooner than they did. Um, there are a number of healthcare concerns and you do wonder, have they looked adequately into these? There have been a number of meetings here and um, conferences and work done by the Department of Health because we are connected very closely. They have a different healthcare model, obviously, in Northern Ireland. It's the NHS. But we do have a number of agreements, some of which are funded by Europe, cross-border healthcare agreements where that we send patients to hospitals that are closer to some of the border patients. We mm. have an agreement with Altnagelvin Hospital and sure, also there, in yeah. Belfast as well. There's cancer services there. There's also GP, reciprocal GP arrangements across the border too. And so what's going to happen um, when they leave the EU? There's a number of research projects and also the free movement as well of healthcare staff from non-EU countries. From okay. There's a lot of issues there. And with medicines, though as we know now, the, the European Medicines Agency is leaving the UK and it's not coming to it's Ireland. It's not coming here. It's the main <laughs> point unfortunately. Laugh, yeah. But yeah, there are a lot of issues there that need to be resolved and I don't know have they done enough work on that. What happens when there's ambulances crossing the border? Well they'll be stuck in the queue. Yeah and what if they're from a non-EU country from that are in the Republic okay. and they're going over to the North? What happens then? Well we don't have the answers. I don't think anybody has the answers to it but Declan Power since you're here in studio the big international story this week and we are tight for time on this you know some concern for Irish forces in the Golan Heights after an escalation <coughs> I suppose in tensions between Israel and Iran. I mean what is the situation there as you understand? Well 
the escalation is the fact that there was a, an exchange of direct fire between Iranian and uh, Israeli forces for the first time in a long time. But for watchers of that space, particularly the Irish forces in both Lebanon and the Golan, uh, this has been brewing for quite a while. It's been brewing for well over a year. Um, Irish personnel that have been involved uh, as liaison officers for uh, the UNIFIL force and Israel and the Lebanese armed forces had been dealing with trying to tamp down uh, tensions and manage expectations. What it boils down to is this. Hezbollah are no longer a resistance force. They, due to their role in the Syrian war, they are a very effectively blooded uh, offensive manoeuvre force with an officer corps that are now trained to plan and execute major conventional offensives. And Israel are abundantly aware of that. And they have launched a few strikes. Uh, last year, last summer, they launched a few strikes in Damascus at weapons dumps to prevent Hezbollah getting weaponry into, into Lebanon. Where mm. this is of concern is if this escalates, the way the world has played out is that Iran now has a proxy supporter in Russia. Israel has a supporter in the US. And if you end up with the two of them going head to head in a direct war, it could have potential to escalate. And that's why uh, this should be of concern to us. Reasons to be cheerful there. We'll Indeed. leave it there at this point. My thanks to today's panel. Declan Power, a security analyst and former member of the Defence Forces. Priscilla Lynch, clinical editor of the Medical Independent. And Christina Finn, political reporter with The Journal. We'll be back in just a moment.